Father, I pray that it is with a humble spirit that we have open minds and open hearts in order that your word would do your work in us. Teach us, sanctify us, and grow us in our walk with you. Give us understanding that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today we will be going through the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is one that everybody has probably heard before. Uh, It's one that the people really tend to love. You have hospitals and all kinds of charitable ministries named after this parable. But I would argue that this is perhaps the most misunderstood parable in all of Jesus' teaching. In fact, I don't think it would even be too far of a stretch to say that this very well could be the most misunderstood passage in the entire Bible. Yeah, it's serious. It's one of those things where you kind of get an idea of it, maybe, and because you haven't heard it in context. In our day and age... When there is a very, very strong movement towards social justice and social action on behalf of the church. Everybody probably knows what I'm talking about. This idea that we should go out and do good works in order to be saved. And and that we're somehow justified by doing good works. That's the, the social justice movement that is rising in the church today. And because this is such a big movement in the church today, it's very important for us to understand this passage and to understand what this parable is really telling us. What is the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Is it just to teach us how to be nice people? Is there more to it than the idea that it's just there to show us who our neighbor is and how to be nice to them? Like with any passage, the way that we approach this passage doesn't start with the passage itself. The examination of the parable starts with understanding why Jesus even told this parable, how it fits into the smaller context, how it fits into the bigger context. Why did Jesus tell this parable? What are the events that led us to this parable? To whom did Jesus tell this parable and why? And so, with all that said, we're going to back up to verse 21 where we see Jesus praying to the Father. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. We see that he's praying to and he's thanking the Father. What is he thanking the Father to? What is he praying to and thanking the Father for? He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Let's just stop there for a second. Maybe, maybe it would completely shock you to see that God would hide certain things from certain people, certain types of people. And if that's the case, it must be extremely shocking for you to see that Jesus is thanking the Father for doing so. What is, what is it exactly that the Father is hiding? He's hiding spiritual truth. In plain sight. Who's he hiding these spiritual truths from? Jesus says he's hiding them from the wise and the understanding of this world. 
And Jesus is thanking the Father for doing this because doing this is in accordance with his own will. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He doesn't work some things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. What a, what a great and awesome and remarkable thing God's sovereignty is. Have you ever thanked God for working all things according to the counsel of his own will? You should. You should. J- Jesus did. That's what he's doing here in verse 21. Let's move on to verse 22. Verse 22, Jesus tells the disciples that he alone has the authority to do two things. Number one, to reveal the Father. And number two, to choose whom he will reveal the Father to. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus says that those who see what the disciples see are more blessed than prophets and kings who came before them who desired to see the things that they are seeing and yet did not. So this sets the context for verse 25, which is where the passage of, uh, in, in which we find the parable of the Good Samaritan is found. This is really what sets the stage for the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we look at the interaction that is about to take place, keep in mind what we've just looked at. Keep in mind what Jesus had just thanked the Father for. So we start with verse 25, and let's just look at verse 25 for a second. Jesus says, and, uh, or Luke says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So it tells us a lawyer stands up. Now, when you hear the word lawyer, you're probably thinking attorney. This is not an attorney. This is, uh, the, the Greek actually indicates that this is someone who teaches and interprets the law of Moses. So he's a lawyer in the sense that the law that he relates to, that he deals with, is the law of Moses. Now, what are some qualities that you would expect from somebody who is a teacher and an interpreter of the law? You would expect them to be wise and understanding. Ah, see how this is tying back to verse 21? This has a connection back to verse 21. And this lawyer asks a very interesting question, a great question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to be saved? And that is a wonderful, wonderful question. In fact, there is not a more important question in the entire universe, in all of human history, that a person could possibly ask. This is it. This is the pinnacle of questions. And most people just kind of assume that they know, or maybe they don't even bother to think about it at all. But why don't more people ask this question? Because in order for someone to ask, what must I do to be saved, or what must I do to inherit eternal life, they must first realize that they don't have it. They must first realize that they need to be saved. They must both realize and confess that they are sinful that they do not live up to God's standard of goodness and righteousness, and that therefore they need to be saved. It is good. It is very good for somebody to ask this question, if. If they ask it with the right 
motives. The fact that this lawyer puts Jesus to the test should tell us something. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's significant, and I think that it probably is, that Jesus, when he was being tempted in the wilderness back in Luke chapter 4, he said to Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To the test. There's that phrase, exact same phrase, again, the same thing that the lawyer is doing with Jesus. So what are we to make of this lawyer putting Jesus to the test with a question like this? It tells us one of two possible things. First of all, maybe it tells us that the lawyer doesn't know what the law of Moses says. Or, number two, maybe it says, maybe it tells us that this lawyer, this interpreter of the law of Moses, didn't see what it was that the disciples were able to see. That is, he didn't see that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. That Jesus was the Messiah of whom all of the Scriptures spoke. He was the promised Messiah. So let's boil this down. Either this lawyer is spiritually ignorant, he doesn't know, or he's spiritually blind. He doesn't see. And Jesus is about to show the disciples and us which of these two options explains the motivation behind the lawyer's question. So we continue with verses 26 to 29. We read, He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus immediately, immediately goes to the right place to find an answer to this question. He doesn't say, What do the scribes and Pharisees teach about how to inherit eternal life? He doesn't say, what do your friends say about this? He doesn't say, what does your heart say about this? He doesn't say, what's the popular consensus? No, Jesus goes straight to the Word of God. He goes straight to the Bible. He says, what is written in the law? Where do you find the law? In the Word of God, in the Old Testament Scriptures. And it's important that Jesus asks this very question. Because it reveals that this lawyer was not theologically ignorant. It's not that he didn't know what the law of Moses said. So we see that this question was not motivated by theological ignorance. He doesn't ask because he doesn't know. He absolutely knows. And that reveals that the reason that he asks this this question in the first place is what? Spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. He has not believed that Jesus is the Messiah. He has not seen what the disciples have been so blessed to see. And the lawyer demonstrates that he does indeed possess a thorough, thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He has wisdom. He has understanding. He knows the right answer, but he knows the answer up here. 
he doesn't know the answer here. He knows it intellectually, but it hasn't sunk into his heart. He summarizes the requirements of the law as accurately as anybody possibly could. When Jesus was asked this question, what are the two greatest commandments? He summarized it almost with exactly the same words. So it's the right answer. He scores 100% on this. But do you see the implications of that? This is revealing the danger of knowing God's word without letting it penetrate your heart. This is the danger of knowing God's word without being changed or moved by it. This is the danger of having information with no application, and so there's no transformation. Friends, we have to be sure to see that Jesus is asking the right question here. He's pointing the lawyer in the right direction. He goes straight to what God's Word says. And this is the question that we always, always, always have to be drawn back to. Whatever it is we're deciding to do, this is the question. What does the Word of God say? This is the question that we always have to come back to. One thing that we see and we read about throughout Scripture is that people are always, always looking for ways to justify their sin. And and that tendency goes all the way back to the first sin. What did Adam do when he was confronted about his sin? What did he say to God? He said, well, it's not me. It's the woman that you gave me. And so with one swift sentence, what's he done? He's blamed the woman, and he's blamed God. He didn't take any of the blame on himself. He justified it by saying, it's your fault, and it's the woman's fault. And what does Eve do when God questions her? The serpent deceived me. People come up with all sorts of ways to justify their sin. God made me this way. Or how about this one? God doesn't exist. Or how about this? God knows my heart, and he's going to forgive me anyway. Yes, God knows your heart. The problem is that you don't know your heart. And your feelings and your emotions deceive you. God knows your heart, and he condemns the sinful desire of the heart to justify sin. Friends, our lives constantly have to be governed by the Word of God because your opinions will change, your emotions will change, your feelings will change, your your desires will change, but the Word of God, like God Himself, will never, ever change. And for that reason, we must see that the Bible is the exclusive and the ultimate revelation of God's will. And thus, it's the one and only authority by which we can govern and manage our lives. There's a growing movement in evangelical circles away from this. As if the Bible is not trustworthy. In fact, one of the biggest churches in the world is in Atlanta. And their pastor, just a couple weeks ago, kind of underscored, undermined, uh, undermined the authority of the Bible in the minds of his congregation when he told them that our problems started when we learned to say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
And his, his whole thing is, you can't go to the Bible to know that you're a Christian. You can't go to the Bible, you can't rely on the Bible to know that you're a Christian, to manage your life. He says, as the Bible goes then, so goes your faith. Like, what does that mean? What does that mean? And he goes on to say that defending the Bible is an impossible task. Friends, if we join along with this movement and throw away our confidence in Scripture, we have nothing objective by which to govern our lives. All we have is our opinions, our emotions, and our desires. And none of those are good. None of those are good. You know who had a lot of confidence in the Bible? Jesus did. Jesus had a lot of confidence in the Bible. And that's why here... The question that he bounces back to the lawyer is, what does the Word of God say? Friends, the flesh will always attempt to justify sin, even in the most mature believer. And the way to avoid this sinful tendency is to seek the will of God in the Word of God. You seek the will of God in the Word of God. And by the way, P.S., you must come to the Word of God humbly with the willingness to be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness, eager to obey what God says. And so the lawyer, he has given the right answer. He has perfectly summarized the demands of the law for salvation. And Jesus acknowledges the fact that he has answered correctly. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He puts the ball back in the lawyer's court, so to speak. He says, do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll live. You want to be saved? Obey and fulfill the demands of the law on your own. Go ahead. Love God the way that you've been instructed if you want to be saved. Love your neighbor the way that you have been instructed if you want eternal life. Because to know the right answer without doing the right answer isn't enough. To know the right answer without doing the right answer isn't enough. What we know about what the Bible says is absolutely worthless if it, if it doesn't have, if we don't have a deep, heartfelt desire to act accordingly in obedience to the Lord. The lawyer should have considered the right answer. And what he should have done is applied that to his life. He should have recognized that he has utterly failed to meet the demands of the law. He should have confessed his inability to obey perfectly. He should have confessed, I don't know if I've ever actually done this. Instead of humbling himself and confessing his failure, he becomes braggadocious. And he commits a fatal mistake. He becomes arrogant. He becomes proud. He's puffed up with his knowledge. And he commits a fatal mistake. Look at verse 29. Look what he says in verse 29. It says, he attempted to justify himself. He attempted to justify himself. What a braggadocious, foolish thing to say. When the lawyer is confronted with his complete failure to live up to the demands of the law, he contests the law rather than feeling the conviction of the law. He tries to justify himself. Now, what does that even mean? 
What does it mean to justify? It means to render as righteous, to declare innocent, basically. And how does the lawyer try to render himself as righteous? How does he try to justify himself? By demonstrating his wisdom and his understanding. But by attempting to demonstrate his own wisdom, all he's done is demonstrate his foolishness. His foolishness. His rebellion. His refusal to apply God's word to his own life. The question is innocent enough by itself. If you just take the question, who is my neighbor? That is an innocent enough question. That's not a bad question. Who is my neighbor? That's, that's not necessarily a bad question. But his motives were wrong. And Luke tells us here what his motives were. The question is an innocent coming from him in this context because the motives behind it weren't innocent. They're arrogant. They're proud. He's not interested in saving his soul. That's not what this is all about. He's interested in winning an argument, not in saving his soul. He was doing what the scribes and Pharisees did. What they would do is they would micro-define every word so that you could boil your whole faith down to a checklist. Yep, I've done this. Yep, I've done this. But all it is is external actions, and it avoids letting the Word of God sink into your heart. It becomes a surface faith. That's why Jesus would say to them, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're, You're beautiful on the outside, and you are death on the inside. They would boil their their faith down to a checklist of do's and don'ts, thereby missing the spirit of the law entirely. If the lawyer had been honest with himself, he would have realized how badly he had failed, how unable he was to live up to the demands of the law, and he wouldn't have resorted to basically having a semantic fight with Jesus. What he should have said is, but what if I failed to do this? What do I do? What if I failed to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And what if I failed to love my neighbor? What do I do then? That's what he should have asked. That's what he should have asked because the truth is he had failed. And so have you and I. So have you and I. The lawyer's attempt to justify himself sets the stage for the parable of the Good Samaritan. So see, if we fail to understand the context here, if we fail to understand why Jesus is telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, we'll be faced with the temptation to think that the point of this parable is to be nice and helpful to people in need. We should be helpful and nice to those in need, but that's not what this parable is about. Right idea, wrong passage. Listen, if we come to this parable without understanding the context and with the view that this is a lesson on what to do, we take a giant leap toward, not away from, we take a giant leap toward the sinful tendency to think that if we're just nice to people, if we just do things to help people in need, we can justify ourselves by being nice people. In other words, we'd be on the verge of looking for a way to do what the lawyer is doing here. 
we'd be on the verge of looking for a way to justify ourselves. And that is heresy. So what is the point of this parable? It's a response. It's a response to this arrogant, unrepentant lawyer. And as we'll see, this parable is an illustration of our utter and complete failure to meet the demands of the law. It's there to show us that we can't justify ourselves. And that is a huge, huge subject. That's what the Reformation was all about. Martin Luther, John Calvin, all those guys, that's what it was about. It was about justification. And they insisted, as Scripture clearly teaches, that we cannot justify ourselves. That's what this parable is about. Let's look at it together. Verses 30 to 35 say this. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Okay, so we understand that the reason Jesus tells this parable is in response to the lawyer's attempt to justify himself. And this parable is pretty straightforward as a man whom we can presume is a Jew because he's starting from Jerusalem. So this man, presumably a Jew, is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he must pass through some very dangerous territory. And from what I understand, by the way, this region is still dangerous even to this day. There are people who live in some caves alongside the roads, and while for most of the year the road is pretty busy, so it's not too dangerous, if you get into the middle of summer when it's scorching hot, there aren't a lot of people on the road, so it can be very dangerous. But as this man is passing through, he's ambushed by some thugs who steal everything he has, including his clothes. They beat him. They take everything from him, and they leave him for dead on the side of the road to Jericho. And as the man lays there dying, three people pass by, Jesus tells us. First, a priest comes walking down the road. And if you were in the shoes of this man who had just been beaten and robbed, maybe you would think, wow, God, thank you. You must really be looking out for me that you would bless me by sending your servant, your humble servant, to arrive on the scene and help me. But the priest goes out of his way to avoid the man. Maybe he has somewhere to be. Maybe he has people that he needs to see. Maybe he just wants to avoid the risk of becoming unclean in case this man dies while he's in his care. Jesus doesn't tell us what his excuse is. But the implication is that there are no valid excuses. He's sinning. This priest, by passing by on the other side and avoiding him as, as, as much as he could, was sinning. He's failing to love his neighbor as the law demands. 
He doesn't show a hint of mercy. He doesn't even give a a, a merciful glimpse, a, a compassionate glimpse over to this beaten man. He just passes by. Next, a Levite passes by. Same thing. He does the exact same thing that the priest had done. He goes out of his way to avoid the man who's beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. His response is exactly the same. Things to do. People to see. Don't want to get unclean. Like the priest, he comes and goes just like that. One sentence. Boom. He's in and out. He's gone. Going out of his way to avoid this dying man. Failing to love his neighbor as the law requires. Failing to even give an ounce of compassion to this man. Both the priest and the Levite know what the Word of God says about stuff like this. They both know what the law says. They know that Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They know that Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? They both go out of their way to avoid a fellow man in need who, like themselves, was created and bears the image of God. They are both illustrations of the wise and understanding. They are both illustrations of the type of people Jesus referred to back in verse 21. They represent the wise and the understanding of this world from whom God has hidden the treasures of spiritual wisdom and understanding. They would have had volumes and volumes of theological texts memorized verbatim, word for word. They could tell you what the law of Moses says. In fact, they could probably tell you uh, as accurately as you read it in your Bible. But they didn't know God. They didn't know God and they had no interest in being obedient to God. And this is a warning to us against having a head full of Bible. A head full of all these theological truths. It's good to have those. But it's a warning against having those, but at the same time having a heart that's far away from God. Having a heart that's filled with rebellion and disobedience toward God. To know what is right, but to continue desiring what is wrong will only multiply God's judgment upon them. Enter the third man. A scum of the earth Samaritan. That's what they would have considered him. He demonstrates compassion to this beaten and dying man. And we have to understand that to the Jews to whom Jesus was telling this parable, Man, the Samaritans, that's what they were. They were scum of the earth. They hated the Samaritans. They were sworn enemies of the Samaritans. And they viewed the Samaritans as compromising apostates of the Jewish faith. And the twist here is that the Samaritan treats the beaten Jew as if he were his own brother or son, bearing the man's burdens and, and then some. I mean, he's... Let's be honest, he's, he's really extravagant. He is going above and beyond the greatest expectation that anyone could have possibly had. 
I mean, if we're all honest with the text here, we would all agree that the care given by the Samaritan is almost excessive. Can you imagine going to such extreme measures to help out a stranger or an enemy in need? We have a saying in America that goes something like this. I hate so-and-so so much, I wouldn't spit on them to warm them up if they were freezing. Have you ever felt like that? I have. I confess, I, I have. I wish I could say that I've never felt that way, but I'm human. I've sinned. I, I've felt this. Toward whom did you feel this? Now imagine that you're the Samaritan, and you've come across that person dying on the side of the road, the person that you said you wouldn't spit on to warm them up if they were freezing. Would you care for them this excessively, this thoroughly, this lovingly? Can you imagine even going to such extreme measures for somebody who hates your guts? Who hates your guts? There is at least one person that you would unquestionably want to receive this kind of care. Yourself. Right? If you were the dying man, you would want to receive this excessive, over-the-top, above-and-beyond type of care. You might also want that for a loved one or a family member. But an enemy? Somebody that you are a sworn enemy to? The question that we're forced to ask ourselves here is do you love strangers, enemies even, in this way? Do you love them and care for them perfectly all the time? And have you always loved them and cared for them perfectly all the time, all of your life, every situation where a need arises? Do you love strangers and enemies this way, consistently? No. You don't, and neither do I. That's the point of the parable. That's the point of the parable. This parable shows us that not a single one of us has fulfilled the demands of God as revealed in the law. Every single one of us has failed to love God the way we should, but we have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves as well. Because we've all failed to love God as we've been commanded. The truth is that none of us have ever loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we haven't loved our neighbors, our enemies, strangers, consistently with the type of compassion required by the law. So Jesus has answered the lawyer's attempt to justify himself by telling this parable. He doesn't get bogged down in a game of semantics. He doesn't say, well, let me give you a, let me give you a checklist here of, of how to define your neighbor. No, think about it for a second. If this man is as unrepentant as we're seeing he is, why would Jesus want to just tell him a story about how to be a good person? It's more than that. So Jesus doesn't get bogged down in a game of semantics. He turns the spotlight back to the lawyer. So we continue in verses 36 and 37. Jesus says to the lawyer, he says, 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So when all is said and done, Jesus asks the lawyer a question that's very, very easy to answer and that even a child could answer correctly. Which, which of these three guys was a neighbor to the man who was beaten and left for dead? Anybody could answer that question correctly. Absolutely anybody. It doesn't take somebody who's schooled in the law of Moses to answer this question correctly because it's obvious. It is completely obvious which reveals the heart of this lawyer. The lawyer wanted to play a word game with Jesus, you know, just go down to semantics. But he gets checkmated quick. Game over. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. But we must not miss something here because we're always looking for repetition when we read the Bible. Notice that earlier Jesus said, do this and you will live. And that was to... Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor. Now, Jesus simply says, go and do likewise. He doesn't say, and you will live. That's because this parable isn't about justifying yourself. This parable is not about justifying yourself. It's about how you have failed to justify yourself. It's not to show you how to be a nice person. It's to show you that by God's standards, you are not a nice person. (laughs) Even if you were to go and do this, it wouldn't be enough because you wouldn't do it perfectly or consistently. And there have been times in your life already where you have not done it perfectly or consistently. Now, there's, there's certainly a lesson in compassion here. We do fail to love our neighbors, and we do need to love our neighbors properly. We're surrounded, we're surrounded, especially in Linwood. Linwood, we are surrounded by people with needs. And most of them are hidden in plain sight. And so we we have to make sure that we are acting with compassion toward those people. In fact, that's what that's what all this stuff is is all about. We're we're having a, a food drive in order to help kids who are homeless and hungry. And that's important. And that shows the type of neighborly love that we do need to be showing as a church. But the primary lesson here is that we can't justify ourselves, that we've all fallen short of what God requires from us. What is the basis of your righteousness before God? What is the basis of your right standing before God today? See, this is where every single religion in the world except for biblical Christianity goes completely wrong. In our flesh, we desire and we attempt to justify ourselves, to render ourselves as righteous or just before God when the truth of the matter is that we can't justify ourselves because we always fall short of God's perfect standards. All of us have fallen short of God's law of meeting the demands of the law, which leaves us with only one option. We only have one option if we want to be justified, other than to pay the full price for our sin on our own. And that one option is to cast ourselves, throw ourselves entirely upon the mercy of God. 
The truth is, friends, only God can justify you. Only God is able to justify you. A deeper and equally important lesson in this parable is that the extravagant and the excessive love that the Samaritan showed to the Jew is just the briefest glimpse of the kind of love that God has for wretched, despicable, degenerate, unworthy sinners like you and me. God gave His only Son, Jesus Christ, to ransom and to redeem all who would place saving faith in Him. And He did it while we were still God's enemies. While we were still God's enemies. The love of Jesus for His people is infinitely, infinitely greater than the love and the compassion that's demonstrated by the Samaritan here. The lawyer couldn't justify himself for the same reason that you and I can't justify ourselves. We have failed to uphold. We have failed to live in perfect obedience to God's standards. We have all sinned. But Jesus lived a perfect life. And thus he is uniquely qualified to be both the just and the justifier of all who will place saving faith in him. This passage ends with the lawyer showing no remorse, no repentance, no sense of guilt or wrongdoing. If only he had just humbled himself. If only he would have just acknowledged his inability to do this. And if only he'd confessed to God that on his own he was unable to live a life that was pleasing to God. Jesus would have welcomed him with an ocean of mercy. He would have cleansed him. He would have forgiven him. He would have washed all of his sin away. What about you? Put yourself in the lawyer's shoes for just a moment. You you heard the parable. You just heard the same parable that the lawyer heard. Do you respond the same way that the lawyer did in unrepentant defiance toward God? Do you remain steadfastly resolved to live your life on your terms? Remaining blind to your deepest spiritual need, which is to believe and obey the Lord. Like the lawyer, do you remain hard-hearted Do you remain proud and arrogant of what you think you've done to justify yourself before God? Friends, do not let that be your response. Do not let that be your response. Instead, I am begging you to confess your inability to live up to God's perfect standards, your desperate need. Confess your desperate need to be saved to have a substitute stand in your place before God. See your need. See your need for Christ to justify you because you are unable to justify yourself. See God's willingness to show you mercy and to forgive you and just throw yourself entirely upon the grace and the mercy of God 
as your only hope. This brings us back to the question that started the whole conversation. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? You must believe the gospel. You must believe the gospel. You must put saving faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel will either confront you and condemn you, or it will comfort you, depending on how you respond to it. You will be condemned by it if you think that you have any other way of being right before God, by being nice to others, by doing good things for others. You can't justify yourself. You cannot justify yourself. But can you come humbly to God? Can you humbly submit yourself to Christ? Because only He can justify you. Only He can give you a right standing before God. Only He can clothe you in perfect, unblemished righteousness, His own, before God. Believe in Him and live in obedience to Him, knowing that the same One who can justify you, Jesus, is able to justify you because you can't meet the demands of the law. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. He fulfilled the demands of the law on behalf of His people, taking their sins upon Himself putting his righteousness on them in exchange through faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this parable and for the the many lessons that it gives us. Father, we do pray that you would teach us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We do pray, Father, that you would give us a a deeper sense of compassion for those who are in need around us. But Lord, we also pray that we would be comforted by the gospel rather than convicted by it. So we ask that you would give us a greater faith Give us a greater trust in you, in your promises. Give us a greater desire, Lord, to live in obedience to you, knowing that there is nothing that we can do to justify ourselves, but that you loved us so much that you sent your only Son to be both the just and the justifier of all who would trust in him, all who would believe in him, all who would abide in him. Teach us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to love you the way that we should and to love our neighbors the way that we should. And in the same, in the same way, Lord, keep us humble. Keep us relying on you. Keep us aware of the fact that Christ, that your Son, is our only hope, that he is all we have, and that he's all we need. It's in his name we pray. So much more
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.